0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in Big Ideas and the editor-in-chief of the network. And each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week I'm happy to say that we have Suzanne Mettler on the show, and we'll be talking about her fascinating book, Degrees of Inequality, How the Politics of Higher Education Sabotage the American Dream, uh, I've been a professor for a long time and I found this book extraordinarily interesting because it sheds a kind of new light on what is happening in my industry, if I may so speak. A lot of changes going on in academia right now. And Suzanne really did a lot to sort of open my eyes, my, open my eyes as to what is in fact transpiring. So, uh, let me say to Suzanne, thank you for writing the book and welcome to the show.
1: Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Sure. Could you kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yes, I am a professor of government, which is really political science, at Cornell University and I study American politics and public policy and I've written a variety of books about uh, American social and educational policies from the New Deal to the present. Mm -hmm. So
0: why did you write Degrees of Inequality?
1: Well, uh I wrote a book many years ago about the World War II GI Bill, and I interviewed veterans and surveyed them, and I was really struck by the big story of the GI Bill, which was that it was a landmark public policy in the United States that enabled uh, men of the World War II generation to acquire far more education and advanced training than they would have otherwise. And I found that they not only got the opportunity through that to really join the ranks of the middle class. But in addition, it enabled them to become more active and involved citizens than they would have been otherwise. They joined more civic organizations. They took part in politics more. And so the overall impact on the United States was that it was a democratizing public policy that included people more fully in public life. So when I finished that book, I was becoming increasingly uh, interested in and concerned about rising economic inequality in the United States which has been a trend since the early 1970s and has been growing dramatically in the past uh, couple of decades. And so I wondered to what extent contemporary public policies are giving young Americans the sort of opportunity that the G.I bill did for people of the world war ii generation and so i in this was about 2005 2006 that i began the project of trying to look at what contemporary educational policies are doing and that's what led to this current book
0: mm-hmm. so the, the backdrop to the book is the thesis and it's correct that the gi bill moved a lot of americans into the middle class um and uh, it obviously made them better citizens as you say uh is a failure to do this or is the fact that this is not happening anymore? Is that the sort of contemporary phenomenon that you're talking about in the book? That is that higher education is no longer this conveyor belt into the middle class and into good citizenry.
1: Well, uh, Today, on the one hand, there are more Americans than ever who attend college, so at first blush, you would look at the contemporary circumstances and say, wow, we're doing even better now than we were back in the middle of the 20th century. Of course, having a college degree is more important than ever. Uh, to how a person does subsequently in terms of their income and their opportunities in the job market. Um, so at first blush you would think we're doing better because more people than ever go to college but when you look at who ends up actually graduating and getting a college degree and the value of that degree what you'll find is that the big increases have been for people in the bottom quarter of the in, in the top quarter of the income spectrum. And for everyone else, the uh, improvements have been pretty modest since the 1970s. Um, and so today, for people below median income, they're barely more likely to get a four-year college degree uh, than they were Um, Back in the 1970s. And then to make matters even worse and more complicated, what matters today is not just whether or not a young person goes to college, but uh, where they attend, because there are some schools from which people can they can enroll in them and end up worse off than if they'd never enrolled in the first place because they have very low graduation rates and end up taking on uh, an exorbitant amount of student debt for which they're on the hook. Um, So they can really be worse off than if they'd never enrolled in college. Mm
0: -hmm. So college going rates have not increased for the bottom quarter of the college going age population since about 1970, right? Right.
1: Well, the, the percentage of people who enroll in college has improved, but the college graduation rates um, have barely improved. Yeah, so fi- today, so today, it's only one out of 10 uh, young Americans in the bottom quarter of the income spectrum who gets a four-year college degree by age 24. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a couple of percentage points uh, improvement since the 1970s.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, if I recall Whereas, the statistics uh, correctly, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um about, uh, I, th- I think it's about one in two Americans try to go to college and really about a, a quarter of them actually make it through. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's about right.
0: Yeah, that's again, about
1: I'm sorry. Right. So, so almost everyone in the top quarter of the income spectrum <laughs> goes to college and 71% of them have completed college degrees uh, by the time they're 24 years old.
0: Right. So a question that I had, uh, and, and since we brought it up in the statistics, if half of the people that go to college don't actually graduate, um, that's a lot of people. And so, is the fault that they aren't graduating? I mean, obviously, s- the students have to bear some of the fault, but isn't the the uh, the failure to graduate these people very, very widely distributed among all colleges? I mean, are there colleges that are just uh, that, that just almost nobody graduates from? I used to teach at an institution that had it almost one hundred percent. Graduation rate. Um, yes. Over, yeah. yes. I mean, they—they were—if they, you were in, you were in, and they were going to get you through. And I've also taught at yes. institutions that are around seventy-five percent or fifty percent. They're both fine places.
1: Yeah. Well, it college graduation rates vary dramatically, both by demographic group and also by the institution that a young person attends. Mm-hmm. So, if someone grows up very low income and and goes to schools. Um, that don 't give them much preparation for college it 's not surprising that for people in those demographic groups, their college graduation rates are going to be poor because they 'll get into college they 're going to have a hard time with the courses and a hard time affording it um, and and that gets to public policy issues right away, which we can talk about in a minute mm-hmm. but it also what also matters is the institution where you attend, and that matters because um, Some institutions are offering students really small classes with a lot of interaction with faculty. Um, They're offering almost entirely classes in brick and mortar settings rather than online courses, um, if, a, if a young person comes from a disadvantaged background, enrolls in a school where their classes are going to be mostly online or huge classes where they don't get much interaction with a professor, their chances of graduating are going to be much less. Mm-hmm. It also makes a difference if their institution is able to provide much support, academic support outside of the classroom and other kinds of support that enable people from less advantaged backgrounds to really be able to succeed, mm-hmm. and so what you find is that the um, the private elite institutions are able to put a lot of resources into education in those ways, and can really have great success rates for people from less advantaged backgrounds. Whereas our public institutions are increasingly stretched because um, states have really been pulling back in terms of how much they invest in higher education, and we should. To talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also because we have this rapidly growing sector of uh, for-profit education, uh, particularly the, the large for-profits that have mostly um, online degrees. And those schools particularly try to recruit people who come from less advantaged backgrounds. They're often the first in their families to go to college. Um, and, you know, that in itself is Terrific that they're, that, that, uh, they're finding ways to, um, incorporate those students. What's problematic is that, is when you look at how the students actually fare in those schools, um, and, uh, these success rates are really poor graduation rates of you know twenty two percent on average and and many of the schools much less than that um, and yet nearly all of the students who attend those schools, which charge very high tuition uh, relative to public universities and colleges um, most of the students uh, borrow, over 90% do. They borrow very large amounts to attend. So they end up um, really worse off in many cases than if they'd never attended in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I don't know quite which direction to go. One question I had, and, and this I think a lot of people don't understand, what's the difference between a, a for-profit college or university and a, a not-for-profit college and
1: university? Um, so a not-for-profit Uh, college or university. This is, you know, most of our institutions in the United States uh, fall into this category. This includes the um, traditional privates, um, and it includes the, uh, all of the public universities and colleges. They're not for profit. So any excess revenue that they make over and above their operating expenses, they are committed by law to reinvesting those funds into the basic mission of the institution, which is education and learning. Um, and different institutions, you know, define their mission in different ways, but it all comes back to education or le- and learning. By contrast, the for-profit institutions um, do not have that, uh, they're not obligated to take the revenues and reinvest them in their mission. Rather, their excess revenues, they use um, for more recruitment of students, they engage in in um, very substantial recruiting, as if you know you're selling a timeshare, that kind of thing, um, and they use them for profits. Uh, so these uh, institutions, which have been around for a long time, but um, the top. 14 or so of them became publicly traded on Wall Street um, beginning in the 1990s and were very successful right up through 2008, even when many other um, companies were were really seeing their profits decline rapidly. These organizations continued to do very well and made a lot of profits off of um, their students.
0: Mm -hmm. I guess the thing that confuses me a little bit about it is that this word profit It's not like the nonprofits don't make an excess over investment they make a huge amount in fact, and they can use that money in any way they want. For example, to pay a star professor, $300,000 a year. Uh, And so the beneficiary of that profit is that star professor. It's true that they aren't publicly traded or anything, but also they don't pay taxes. So it just seems to me that there's just a, we we have to be really clear about this. They, they work in a different environment. I mean, some of these places are incredibly wealthy. And don't pay any taxes, right. and own some of the yeah. most, you know, uh, basically some of the most valuable real estate in the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think we need to, you know, point out that 73 percent of American college students are attending public universities and colleges, most of which are community colleges or their state colleges um, or their non-elite um, universities, there's just a really small um, slender uh, group of mm-hmm. those that actually are are more elite and have uh, more substantial revenues coming in. Um, and we tend to you know focus on those few, the mm-hmm. University of Michigan, University of Virginia, et cetera, but they're the exception to the rule and then when it uh, too much of our uh, discussion about higher education is driven by talking about the elite private nonprofits, the Harvards and Yales and so on, which, you know, certainly have very large endowments. Um, But um, I I think that 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 skews the discussion about those schools that, um, because that's, you know, only a very small percentage of American Mm -hmm. college students are actually enrolled in those schools. Mm -hmm. They have their own issues. Um, They are, all of these elite schools are important research Universities, and so that's part of their mission. Is that they're, um, you know, they're trying to set up labs for scientists who are engaged in research. Um, but that's actually not my focus in right, this work. Sure. I'm really concerned about um, our ability as a nation to be educating more of our citizenry and uh, enabling more people from across the income spectrum to acquire four-year college degrees.
0: Right. Well, let's talk just about that in public policy terms, and this is the heart of the book. What? Public policies. I really like the idea of a public policy that needs to be managed because you're quite right about that. They, they sort of, you know, they're like dinosaurs or something. They sort of, they, they exist past their prime and don't operate very well. Uh, t- talk about some of the policies that have hindered our ability to educate children in or young people in that uh, lower quartile or lower half.
1: Well, because we've been talking a little bit about the public institutions, let me address that first, because okay. in some ways, um, you know, that's one of the very biggest issues. So throughout our history in the United States, from the creation of the Northwest Ordinance soon after the American Revolution and, and the founding um, on down, the federal government worked hand in hand with states and with private organizations to try to expand higher education and to build what has really been a world-class system of higher education Mm -hmm. in the United States. And traditionally, the federal government would provide uh, carrots, if you will, to the states to incentivize them to invest themselves. And so after the Northwest Ordinance, um, through the federal government gave land grants to the states, then they started establishing very early on their own public universities and colleges. More of this happened in the nineteenth century after the creation of the Morrill Act, uh, signed into law by uh, Abraham Lincoln in 1862, and then an extension of it later on in the century. And then in the 20th century, um, the middle of the 20th century, the federal government creates all of these big uh, federal student aid laws from the GI Bill up through the Higher Education Act of nineteen sixty five and And the states followed by investing more than ever in developing their public universities and colleges. So we're at a point today where the vast majority of Americans who go to college, they attend these public universities and colleges. The problem is that since the early 1990s, the states have have had to pull back on how much they invest in these colleges and universities. And they've pulled that quite substantially. Um, So the per pupil funding has dropped by 26% in real terms. And funding has dropped in, you know, per capita and as a percentage of state budgets and in just about every way you can measure it. And so what this means is that what the institutions have had to do instead in order to pay their bills in a time when costs for higher education have been going up, what they've done is to shift the burden to students and their families. And so tuition has gone up over the same period from 1990 to 2010. Mm. It went up by about 113 percent percent in real terms. So this really puts a lot of pressure on uh, low to middle income people who particularly look to the public sector for going to college. It also means that the uh, public universities and colleges have had to squeeze resources to squeeze more students into the classroom per faculty member to have more online teaching, which, you know, there's a lot of excitement about the possibilities inherent in online teaching, but Um, the public universities and colleges have been using it mostly as a cost savings measure. And uh, what we find is that students enrolled in those classes are much more likely to drop out and not to complete the course.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It
1: doesn't seem to work very well pedagogically as yet. You know, we probably can continue to develop our understanding of the best practices for that uh, sort of approach to education, but we're not there yet. Um, And, uh, and also they've had to cut back on the support services for students students. So all of these things have the impact of um, low graduation rates, students dropping out and not continuing, not Mm -hmm. being able to afford to continue and not being sufficiently um, able to to keep up with things because they don't have the support. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, the the big thing I would mention. And what's happened is that states have had competing demands. They've had to increase what they're spending on Medicaid and K-12 education and incarceration all of these things are mandatory forms of spending for states, whereas higher education is the largest discretionary area of spending that states engage in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, it has borne the brunt. So that's one of the big areas I focus on in the book. I also talk about what's happened uh, at the national level or federal level. Um, Here for a long period of time, what states what the federal government devotes to low-income students through Pell Grants was falling behind in real terms from when it was created in the early 1970s uh, and not keeping up. Now, just recently, we have increased, again, uh, quite dramatically what we're spending on Pell Grants. That's happened from 2009 and 2010. Uh, There were, uh, well, actually even starting before that, um, since uh, around 2000, there were increases in the value of Pell Grants. Um, But they're well behind the cost of uh, education now because it's gone up much more quickly than inflation. Uh, And so they don't have the same impact. Back in the 1970s, a Pell Grant um, paid for about 80% of the cost of attending a four-year public university or college. Um, and now it pays for just over 30% of that cost mm-hmm. for tuition, room, and board, and fees. So they're much less effective. Meanwhile, what the federal government has been doing instead, our new area of spending over the past um, uh, couple of decades, has been through the tax system. So uh, this started under Clinton, that we uh, allow people to get some uh, money back through the tax system in proportion to what they're paying for tuition. The problem is that this kind of, of uh, public policy does not actually increase the percentage of people who get college degrees. It doesn't um, enable people who wouldn't go to college otherwise to say, oh, now I can afford it. And that's because of the way the policy is delivered, which is long after tuition is paid, people get a, this perk back through the tax system. So it's not a very effective public policy.
0: Mm-hmm. You said a lot there, and there's a lot to kind of grapple onto. I have taught in a variety of circumstances, and one of them was actually at a large land grant college in the Midwest where I saw Mm -hmm. a lot of what you were talking about. And I did teach online courses and what you say is correct. Um, Mm -hmm. Where actually to to start? I mean, I guess one thing that listeners might want to know is this. Uh, I used to be the director of undergraduate studies in a department and people would come to me and say, should I go to college? And I would say, well, uh, yes, if you uh, get a certain GPA in this state, you are guaranteed a place at this college and you will definitely get a loan. You should do it. And that was true of everybody that walked in my office, rich or poor, they would get a loan. Is it, is it at what point do we say, uh, at what point do we say we're asking students to shoulder too much of the burden? Because, you know, again, from the perspective of, of equity, if the student does take the loan and if they do try really hard in school and if they do complete the course, assuming they're treated equally, and I think at this place they were, then they're going to be able to pay off that loan and they've been afforded yeah. the opportunity to go to college.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a great question to ask, and I like the way you phrased it. Um, there has been a growing concern about uh, student indebtedness in the United States, and with with good reason. But we tend to treat the topic in too simplistic a fashion. What I would say is that we need to look at the institution that a young person attends. And that makes such a big difference Mm -hmm. because um, if a student goes to a school with a very high graduation rate and they're borrowing money to go there, that might be warranted because they're going to graduate and then they're going to uh, very likely have a, a substantially higher income than they would have if they'd never gone to college and they're going to be able to pay off that loan and that's an a you know an appropriate sort of uh investment for them to have made and for the american public to be making in them and and so on um, if however they go to a school with really poor graduation rates and, um, they're not going to They're they're just going to become indebted and they're going to end up dropping out. Then they're going to be worse off. Um, and ultimately if they default, then the American public is on the hook. Mm -hmm. Um, but also, uh, you know, that, that student is, is going to have this terrible, um, debt hanging around their neck as well. And so, um, that's what we really need to look at. So I would say, um, well, debt is not all created equal that you really need to look at the institution that a student is attending. Um, public universities and colleges um, have become you know much more expensive uh, for people to afford, but they 're still the best deal in town so often a person who's going to a for profit college could be going to a public college, uh, getting the same training for a fraction of the price. And that would be a much smarter move for them to make. Um, they would be borrowing much less um, than they would be going for profit. So that would be a wise call.
0: Mm-hmm. So to continue that uh, line of thought, I'm thinking about a state legislature in this state at this university where I taught in the Midwest and that state mm-hmm. legislature receives as they receive every year, uh, you know, line item for the big university. And um, and uh, it's increased from last year. Uh, uh, why would the state legislator approve that increase? Well, I mean, what you know, what 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 argument could be made to that gal or guy that the university needs more money right. in terms of this in terms of this kind of issue? If you see what I mean, in terms of graduation rates, in terms of paying for underprivileged children.
1: Yeah. Well you know historically in the United States uh, if there's one public policy that that people have really rallied around it's been education and we have this long tradition of thinking of higher education um, as well as k-12 education as being an important public good Mm -hmm. it's a way to um, that Americans have accepted if you look at you know public opinion polling over time um, People are often somewhat ambivalent about um, establishing greater equality through social welfare policies, but they will applaud the idea of creating equal opportunity by enabling people to pursue as much education as they are willing to pursue. Um, And so uh, there there is that tradition. For states that want to develop their economy, um, investing in, in human capital and the workforce is critical, of Mm -hmm. course. And then in terms of dealing with all kinds of social issues can be much less expensive to do so by creating a more education, more educated citizenry than paying for those costs if you don't do that. So, you know, this is what traditionally state legislatures have been willing to do. And so the aberration is um, that in the past couple of decades that that states are not doing that, that they're um, and, and, you know, in many ways, their hands are tied because unlike the federal government, most states have to have a balanced budget. So if they have these growing demands in these other areas, then they are spending less on their state universities and colleges.
0: Yes, the state I'm talking about had to have a balanced budget. Yeah, I was was very proud of that balanced budget, but I don't know what you say is convincing to me. Maybe that university should hire you to go up to (laughs) talk to them. Um, Yeah. Um, So uh, tell us uh, um, a a little bit more about attempts to regulate the for profits and how you see them playing into the mix, because in some places in the book, you are very complimentary. And, and and then in other places in the book, you're very critical. And I think Americans, me included, don't really understand what's going on here because a, a kind of new service is being offered to us and we don't quite right. know what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah well uh, in fact the for profits are not really new now there are a few of them like DeVry and Strayer that were created in the late 19th and early 20th century so they go way back mm-hmm. but when the first GI bill was created after World War two it provided a uh, a lot of federal funding um, for uh, vocational training for veterans and on the job training. And so immediately, um, there was the development of all all these new schools and programs that hadn't existed before that fit this model. At the time, they were not called for profits, though technically they were, but they were called trade schools and the like. Um, And As soon as that happened, problems also began to emerge that Congress and presidential commissions became very concerned about because they thought that a lot of these schools were gouging prices and they were charging just as much as the federal GI Bill benefits. Uh, enabled them to take advantage of, um, and they thought some of them were providing shoddy training. So there were all sorts of investigations and hearings and the like. Um, And then uh, with the Korean War GI Bill, we began to regulate uh, these schools a bit. Um, But the same kind of cycle continued once the the trade schools became eligible, their students became eligible for using funds from civilian student aid after the creation of the Higher Education Act. Um, and again, all of these schools grew and expanded overnight and, and um, lined up in order to try to take advantage of the federal funding, and there were lots of concerns on the part of members of Congress and so throughout the 1980s there were all kinds of investigations going on. Um, And finally in the early 1990s uh, Congress enacted a few regulations on these and put in place what was then called the 8515 rule and it was building off of a rule that had been applied um, to the Korean War GI Bill and that is that these schools could get no more than 85% of their revenues from the federal government through student aid. The rest had to come from some other source. Um, this rule got watered down in 1998 to being the 90 10 rule. so, And that's what's in place today. So today, these for-profit colleges, like the University of Phoenix, which is owned by the Apollo Group, and Education Management Corporation, um, and and so on, these schools are enabled by law to receive up to 90% of their revenues from the federal government and actually from just one public policy, the Higher Education Act, Title IV, which is Pell Grants and Student Loans. Now, that does not even include what they can get from the military-related education programs, such as the GI Bill. So, um, they can get more over and above that. It's really a loophole so they could be, uh, theoretically, they could be entirely funded by the federal government. And in fact, of those large ones, on average, they receive 86% of their revenues from the federal government and, uh, you know, do very well on Wall Street, meanwhile. Um, so American taxpayers are really subsidizing these schools almost entirely. We call them for profit, which makes them sound like they're private, um, but for the most part, they are publicly funded uh, organizations. So what I would say, we've been in a period of deregulation of these um, from 1998 through 2006. There have been efforts in the past few years uh, during the Obama administration to create new regulations, but um, some of them were created and then thrown out by a judge, the Gainful Employment Rules, and now there's another set being created. Um, I believe that Congress needs to act and needs to regulate these schools and that we are obligated as a nation to do that. The problem is that for students who undergo the heavy recruitment these schools engage in, there's an information asymmetry. So as consumers, these students are being sold the bill of goods that they have very little knowledge about, but they're signing on the dotted line and taking out loans before they enroll. And then as soon as they do, many of them realize, oh, this school is not what I thought it was, but they're already on the hook. Um, education is different than buying a car in all sorts of ways. Um, it's harder to ass- assess, particularly for someone who's Um, from a family or community where almost no one's gone to college, it's much harder to assess the value of it before you're already immersed in it. Um, And as well, it's a different kind of Thing than buying a car because it's a public good that all that uh, you know in American society we think of it as a right for people. We also th- we also think of acquiring a college education as something that can help society more broadly through economic development mm-hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. So I believe we're really obligated to try to regulate these for-profits. The other thing is that, you know, taxpayers are on the hook for the large amount of money. We now spend, of the amount we spend on federal student aid, one in four dollars is going to the Mm for-profits. They enroll only 13% of students but they're using a much greater percentage of federal student aid. um, And yet they have the the lowest graduation rates by far of any sector. Uh, And so we really need to find a way to hold them accountable. We should be holding all sorts of institutions accountable. I'm singling out the for-profits though, because there is um, a prevalence of bad actors there. Hmm. Um, And so we really need to take action.
0: Yeah, again, you raise a lot of points. One that occurs to me, and I, again, I just am speaking from a point of view of ignorance. Uh, why Why is the government regulating uh, where businesses get their income?
1: Um, what do you mean? Why well, you know, it, I mean,
0: well, yeah, why should it? I mean, you know, there's a Korean grocery store down the street. The government doesn't tell them, okay, a certain percentage of your income can come from food stamps and no more than that.
1: Oh, I see. Well, um, you know, the, the problem is if you have uh, organizations that really might not even exist were it not for government funds and yet, you know, and, and they're serving their clients, their customers poorly, the outcomes are really poor um, and they're leaving taxpayers on the hook. Mm-hmm. That's problematic.
0: Yeah, but couldn't it also be said? And I'm just playing devil's advocate here. <laughs> um, couldn't it also be said that the defense industry, the defense contractors, they basically live and die from the government?
1: Yeah, that's that's true, um, absolutely. But here we're talking about the provision of a, you know, something we consider a human mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. and you have students being taken advantage of right. um, through the process, right? Uh,
0: Right. So So, just just to focus on that point for a moment again, as the devil's advocate, shouldn't people be free to decide where they want to go to school?
1: Um, Yes, they should be free. But, um, you know, we have a long history of consumer regulation in the United States. We want people, when they are acting as consumers, to be able to have some guarantee that what they are are putting themselves at risk for by either spending their money or even going into debt, as the case is here, <coughs> that they are um, going to be getting a good or service that is worth it. Um, and so that's what I'm saying is that we need to protect
0: consumers. Right, but the, but the nonprofit that is the regular educational institutions, having worked in them for decades now, they offer no such guarantee. They offer no guarantee um, at all of any outcome.
1: Right, but... Um, I wish they
0: did.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about how can we do that. The the, uh, for-profits exist for the explicit purpose of giving people training for gainful employment Mm -hmm. in particular trades and occupations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can, the question is, do they do that successfully? And if people are not able to repay their loans, if they graduate from these schools, which, you know, if they're among the 22% who actually graduate, then um, are they able to do employers recognize those degrees and hire them you know, the, the, these schools have the highest default rates by far. They account yeah. for nearly half of all student loan defaults. So, you know, that doesn't seem to be happening. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a good point. But, again, I, I'm reminded of graduate school in my field's history. Half of the people – well, half of the people that go to graduate school in history around the nation don't complete their degree. Of those, half of them never get jobs. So, they, it, right. they're obviously, there's something going wrong there, too. I mean, they're yeah. not regulated yeah. at all.
1: Well. And these are big
0: institutions, Harvard's and Yale's and Berkeley's and Michigan's and Cornell's and, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, certainly. I mean, there there is a a call right now by the Obama administration for all universities and colleges to be subjecting themselves to making more data readily accessible to um, consumers so that they can see you know, what the graduation rates are like and what subsequent earnings are like and, and so on. Um, I have a particular concern about the for-profits doing that. Most people who go to PhD programs these days are able to go into it with their eyes wide open they, um, you know, I I speak with these students regularly and they're asking, well, um, you know, what are your placement rates for your graduates and and where do they go on to teach and where do they get hired and so forth and so on. Um, And they're pretty savvy consumers, um, whereas the for-profits tend to be recruiting students who, as I said, are the first in their family or community to be going to college. um, And they really don't have that information. And even if we make a lot of data available, I don't think that's necessarily going to help because you're talking about people who are, uh, you know, often they're, they're very young, they're 18 year olds and um, the data itself might not help. To uh, give them the wake-up call that they need, that right. unfortunately many of them get too late when they're already on the hook.
0: Right. So you wouldn't say there's any educational fix for this, you know? For example, if we have consumers, you know, I'm thinking the loan market. Obviously, there was some bad acting there, and and people were not acting under full information of what was going on. And some people said, well, we have this educational program that will like tell everybody how loans work. You you can't imagine that any such educational program could work for 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 the for profits. And we say, okay, these are the colleges that are out there. And these are the risks, you know, so tell every high school senior this. It
1: would certainly help. And, you know, the problem is that the opposite happens for people who live in low income communities. For most of them, the only colleges that they hear about um, are the for profits the for profits come to their high schools and do recruitment they advertise in subways and on billboards and late night television and so on and they're not being reached out to very much by traditional universities and colleges um, and uh, so you know the the opposite thing is happening of what you're suggesting and I think education is a first is a first step but um, I actually think it would be far more effective and more responsible for the federal government to, to at least restore the kind of regulations that we had in the early 1990s that were created by Democrats and Republicans alike at that time period, mm-hmm. um, and for which there's now so little support.
0: Are public institutions, you know, community and colleges and stuff, are they, are they subject to the 90 rule?
1: um no um no they are not subject to the 9010 rule and of course you know they get a lot of of public funding but students also dig deep um and pay tuition to attend them mm-hmm. um and that's because you know people value what they produce. And there's a long history of of people knowing in their states about other people in their communities who've gone to attend these um, same universities and colleges and have had a valuable experience there. Um, So the same can't be said. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm tipping my hand here. I love community colleges. I think it's the best higher education program the United States ever
1: (laughs) constructed.
0: Because they're just, they're just fantastic places. They really are.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, what I would like to do is to shift funding away from the for-profits, which have such poor outcomes, and shift it to the community colleges, which are so underfunded um, and which are trying to do really fantastic things um, on a shoestring. Yeah, they are. Um, and uh, and so that's where I would put a lot, of,
0: a lot of money. And they do do fantastic things. I should give a shout-out to the community college, which was near this university where I taught, and they used to send me students. Students that had, had finished the uh, the two year degree there, and they were super prepared. And I was just, yeah. uh, I was so happy to have them. Um, so uh, th- we talked a lot about these these for profit I- I- institutions. I guess one last question: you don't you don't see the market um, the market rectifying the situation? In other words, you know, these people compete for students; these corporations do. And one has to imagine. I used to work in a corporation. One has to imagine that they sit in a room saying, "How can we get?" you know, how can we get Phoenix's students and, you know, sure, advertising will do it, but also if we increased our retention rate and we could publicize that. And-
1: well, you know, they actually are able to spend a lot on their marketing, whereas public universities and colleges, especially community colleges, are not able to do that. They don't have that kind of budget. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not a simple case where the laws of economics will just help to root out.
0: The bad actors, right? Um, right. Well, I, t- I would say I would say one proviso to that is that uh, this place, the University of Iowa, I'll tell you what it is, had an institution called the Hawkeyes. It was a football mm-hmm. team, and it was the greatest mm-hmm. recruitment device on earth. And they got a lot oh, yeah. of free television time.
1: <laughs> well, that yes, is yes, uh, a lot of free national yeah.
0: television time that I don't right. think any for-profit gets. So, in fact, they got paid to be on television.
1: Great. Right. So yeah, No. Better. well, that is, that is the case about <laughs> yeah. college sports. Oh, yeah, here, so right? that's
0: a really good thing there. So um, I, I guess this is a uh, – I'm, hesita- I'm hesitant to ask this question, but, you know, in a kind of blue sky way, you've talked a little bit about it already, and we agree there's a problem. What, what should be done to, to fix it where it is returning the United States and its educational system back to the day in which – the less prosperous among us were given a ladder they could climb into the middle class, and the whole citizenry could be better educated than it is now. Which is, yeah. I think we all want—that everybody on every right. side of this it's, debate—it's
1: exactly what we want. Well, you know, um, I could give a long laundry list because, <laughs> in many ways, that's that's what it takes. But I guess I want to. First, look at the big picture because that's most important. I think we need to step back and look at our history and see how we have this tradition as a nation in, of investing in uh, higher education for broad public purposes. Too often now we speak of higher education as if it's simply a private good that enables people to, you know, be better off themselves. And that's not necessarily a worthwhile rationale for why government should be uh, investing much more in it. Um, You know, it's very nice for those individuals that they get to go on and and have a uh, more comfortable standard of living for themselves and their families, but why should government be subsidizing all of that? I think that's a really fair question. However, um, in fact, we know that higher education has all of these public um benefits uh, as well that are really crucial, really important, and um, that's what we need much more of. We need to be investing mm-hmm. in human capital um, in this country, and we need to be mitigating inequality and so on, and so we need to find ways to do it. So how to do it, the actual practicalities, um, there's lots of detail there, but we need to find a way to reinvest in public universities and colleges. Um, Particularly the kinds of you know state colleges and community colleges um, that have have really been suffering over the past couple of decades from lack of funding. We need to regulate the for profits so that we don't have um, a growing underclass of people who have these great aspirations to pursue the American dream and end up worse off than if they'd never gone to college in the first place. We do need to hold both public and private nonprofit and profit uh, colleges accountable when they receive student aid um, that uh, you know, that they are being good actors. There are some, there's real variation among the private elites, for example, in terms of the percentage of Pell grant recipients that they take in and the extent to which they supplement their Pell grant funding with additional aid that will really enable them to graduate. And uh, so I think we should be, you know, um, trying to move more of them in the direction of being really responsible actors, given the amount of federal aid that they receive. Um, And uh, so, you know, those are those are a few of the things that I would mention.
0: Mm -hmm. Are you optimistic or pessimistic at this point?
1: (sighs) Oh, well, (laughs) Um, I, you know, when you when you look at what's happened over the past couple of decades, um, you know, one can get quite pessimistic. Um, But when I look at our longer history, uh, it makes me more optimistic because we really have such an amazing uh, tradition in the United States of, you know, being a leader in higher education. And we were until recently, I mean, people um, of of my generation, I graduated from college in 1984. Uh, For myself and for my older siblings, our cohort group was the most highly educated, we as Americans were the most highly educated of Anyone in the world at that point in time, there was a higher percentage of college graduates in the United States than any other nation, but since then we 've fallen behind to about eleventh all these other nations have leapfrogged over us, and we 've not been making progress so um, but I think you know we did it in the past and we can restore that
0: yeah i don't know we have to, uh, I guess I, I work on the internet a lot now, and so I talk to internet entrepreneurs and i 've taught online classes myself and i 've uh, used computers a lot in classes. I don't use them so much anymore, actually. I didn't use them as much as I did. Um, I'm back to chalk. But in any event, I, I really think that uh, the Internet is going to change dramatically the way all institutions deliver learning. I, I really do. Uh, I, I think we're in the infancy of these for-profit institutions. If they are to be uh, extinguished, so to say, it will be the nonprofits that do it because they will learn how to do it better. And mm-hmm. the, uh, the for-profits do. There's no guarantee that will happen, but I had... It's interesting, I'll just tell you my experience with online teaching. It's true that uh, over half of the kids that enrolled in my classes failed, literally got F's every time I taught these classes, and I taught them for a few years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But they failed because they didn't complete the class, not because right. they couldn't do the work. There was nothing wrong with yeah. the way I taught it. There was something right. wrong with the way they thought about it, and they yeah. just didn't do it, and so they failed. Yeah. But the online class, which had a parallel um, live class, the online class was harder and I made it harder because they lacked that uh, sort of live component. And for those students that did really well in that online class, and there were not very many of them, I have to admit, you know, so uh, they, they were really good. So it was sort of bimodal. There were a lot of F's and a lot of Mm -hmm. A's and what what I want to do, what I would hope that these people learn how to do, and Lord knows they're waiting for their Steve Jobs or Henry Ford or I don't know who is to, Get more A's, You know what I'm saying? Right, get, get right, people right. to take these things more seriously, because I, I think that's possible. I really do. I, I, again, just me, when I have to learn something new now about computers or whatever it is, especially if it's a technical skill, I don't take a class, even at the local community college. I, I take an online class to do it because right. I know, how, we, I know how to do this thing. And but what and, we know, and, for
1: example, you know, oh, go ahead.
0: And I was going to say, the economies of it are incredible. I don't have to pay anything for this education. Uh, But again, I'm a particular kind of person who knows how to learn something from a big box. (laughs) Exactly. I can learn something from a box.
1: That's what the research (laughs) seems to be showing. Um, You know, the people who, like a a very large number of people enroll in MOOCs in the massive online uh, courses. Mm -hmm. Um, But the people who actually complete them, who are very few, are people who are already highly educated. (laughs) So they are people who have learned how to learn. They know how to be students, so they can work quite independently. Um, But the students that we need to be most concerned about um, who really need to be getting college degrees, um, don't necessarily have that sort of, of preparation mm-hmm, to true. succeed in that. But, you know, I also agree with you that going forward, we need to find appropriate pedagogies that work best, probably some combination of brick and mortar and online experiences for a particular Classes and through, and for a whole academic program uh, that that helps to incorporate. Yeah, I, I
0: love teaching online. I really liked it just because it was a new experience for me, and also I know some of the students loved it as well. Again, there were those mm-hmm. students that just disappeared, but in my live class there were students that just disappear. I mean, that doesn't so mm-hmm. much happen at Cornell. I used to teach at another place like Cornell, and people didn't just disappear. But the college wouldn't let them disappear. <laughs> they come after you at Cornell. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so absenteeism of that kind is, is pretty common in both, but much more common in the online class. But as I say, you know, the great educational reformer, whoever it's going to be that's going to figure out how to do all this, she's not here yet. <laughs> I hope she shows up because it's, uh-huh. it's a huge economy. The internet just affords. An absolutely incredible economy in terms of the delivery of of, mm-hmm. um, of education. I think it really does. So who can tell? That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Suzanne. Uh, let me conclude the interview by asking you uh, our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Or maybe you're just taking a rest from this book.
1: <laughs> Yeah, I do need to recuperate a little bit from degrees of inequality. But, um, well, I uh, I have uh, many projects that I'm I'm working on. Uh, the book that I wrote previous to this one was called The Submerged State, which is about how uh, in the United States today, in fact, we have a vast array of different kinds of government programs and types of spending, but some of them are delivered in a way that's pretty hidden from public view, such as through the tax code, and so, so people don't really recognize that government's doing anything for them. Um, my next book will pick up where that book left off and look at how changes in American social welfare policies from the 1970s to the present have affected people's attitudes about government and their participation in politics.
0: So I was going to say, never mind. I was going to say welfare queens, you know, because there's that whole thing about the way Americans see welfare. The other thing about—I'm sorry to digress here for a second—but having lived in Europe, I always tell Mm -hmm. Americans that we don't have any welfare system because Mm -hmm. we do. I mean, we don't have the dole, for example, Mm -hmm. and most Americans don't realize this—that you know—that actually our welfare system is just so entirely different. So uh, they have no conception that. It's it's so it's it's really unique among developed nations. Am I wrong about that?
1: No, you, no, you're you're quite right about that. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that we actually um, are kind of in the middle of the road among the developed nations in terms of how much we devote to social welfare spending, but we deliver it through different ways, mm-hmm. more through um, private organizations and through uh, the tax code rather than just direct public services. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also devote more of it to people who are pretty high up on the income spectrum, um, by contrast to European Hmm.
0: countries. Hmm. That's Mm -hmm. not so good. Well, never mind, I said that. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a discussion for the next time
0: you yeah, call me up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't, don't, don't write me letters. Don't send me emails. I don't know. You get what you get. Um, okay, that's great. Today we've been talking to Suzanne Mettler about her book Degrees of Inequality, How the Politics of Higher Education Sabotage the American Dream. Suzanne, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me on, Marshall. I've really enjoyed chatting with you.
0: Absolutely my pleasure, and let me tell everybody who listens to this podcast thank you very much, and I hope you have a good weekend. It's going to be the fourth, so have a 4th of July for those of you in the United States.